From MTMA, welcome to the Insights Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams. For many, this is a hot topic and it's something that they're fiery about. And we completely understand that. But once you get those fires tamed down, we don't want you to stop there. We want you to keep looking at it. That's Taya Moheiser talking about innovation and revenue cycle management. We'll hear more from Taya and fellow RevCycle expert Kim Tolliver later in the show. We'll also hear from Molly Gelbird on important regulatory changes made to next year's physician fee schedule. But first, a word from our sponsors. Over the last decade, value-based care has emerged as a compelling alternative to traditional reimbursement models in primary care. While challenging, this model has proven to be profitable to those who prepare for it. Humana, one of the nation's largest healthcare providers, has teamed up with researchers at MGMA to bring you a new report providing data, case studies, and advice on how to get a jump on the transition. It also takes a closer look at the impact of value-based models on your primary care environment and your potential ROI. To check out the report, visit mgma.com slash VBC report, as in value-based care report. It's easy to fill off course when managing the complexities of a medical practice's revenue cycle. But we've got your solution. MGMA's Book of the Month, Revenue Cycle Management, Don't Get Lost in the Financial Maze by Taya Moheiser and Kim Tolliver. Whether you're new to revenue cycle management or a seasoned professional, the concepts covered in this primer will help your practice keep it all straight and stay on the pathway to success. To purchase or preview revenue cycle management, don't get lost in the financial maze, visit mgma.com rcm. Revenue cycle management touches every aspect of a medical practice, from the front line to the bottom line and everywhere in between. Navigating such a landscape can be complicated and overwhelming for even the most seasoned of healthcare professionals, which is precisely where today's guests come in. Taya Moheiser and Kim Tolliver are colleagues, friends, co-presenters, and authorities on revenue cycle management. The two recently wrote and released their first book, Revenue Cycle Management, Don't Get Lost in the Financial Maze. Well, Kim and Taya, thanks so much for joining the podcast today. Thanks for having us, Daniel. Absolutely. Now, tell our audience, if you don't mind, a little bit about your background in healthcare and really your emphasis on revenue cycle management, where that came from. Just for the sake of it, Kim, if you don't mind kicking us off there. Sure, absolutely. So I started my career at the front desk and I moved my way up through billing, collections, coding, and then practice management. My degrees in healthcare administration and organizational management have given me the tools I need to move from a 15-year career as a practice management manager to owning medical revenue cycle specialists for over 10 years. I've complemented my education on the job training, with certifications in coding, practice management, and MGMA's CMPE certification. I feel like the revenue cycle is the backbone of the medical practice, which is what led me to focus the bulk of my career on improving it for as many organizations as possible. Okay. Taya, what about your background? 
Hi, Daniel. Uh, you know, similar to Kim, I started my career by working my way up in a larger multi-specialty practice setting, and I obtained various industry certifications shortly thereafter. I rounded out that education with a bachelor's degree in healthcare management. Um, I'm the current president-elect for Nebraska Hymns, and I work heavily with MGMA, including government affairs. And you see that regulatory burden come into play with revenue cycle, and it can be particularly turbulent for a healthcare organization, which can be really devastating to, to those that have a smaller margin. And I think that's why it's something that I'm so passionate about. Um, and this is our first podcast also, so we're, we're pretty excited about that. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, I, as some of our listeners may have uh, heard, uh, the three of us, we're on a uh, broadcast for MGMA Live. It was a live segment to uh, basically virtual uh, audience members at MGMA's annual conference. And so we had a, we had a lot of fun talking there. Uh, so Taya, I wanted to follow up with you. Um, you guys presented on the topic of taming and innovating your revenue cycle model. For the people who weren't able to hear that broadcast, wanted you to fill in what was the main goal you had for that presentation and what were some of the the tools takeaways and other ideas that you guys shared there yeah great question thank you you know we both work with organizations of varying size setup and location but we're kind of seeing those same revenue cycle issues across all of them Kem and I were discussing this observation, even just anecdotally, and we realized that the industry needs more support on how to stabilize and how to innovate within organizations' revenue cycle models. And so that's what prompted us to speak on that topic at the annual conference. You know, each organization's revenue cycle challenges are definitely going to be unique, but the foundational steps are really the same. And so we focused on providing education on ways to strengthen those internal processes, and we capped it off with innovation opportunities that audience members may or may not have been aware of prior to attending. The goal, honestly, was just to ensure that attendees left that presentation with a new set of tools so that they could stabilize and grow the revenue cycle effectively and efficiently. Yeah, I wanted to follow up with you for just a moment then. When looking at the title there, you're talking about taming and innovating your revenue cycle model. Is that, um, is that something that you guys came up with? It just, it, it's, a, it's a really clever title, but when you think about revenue cycle models, revenue cycle management, um, Innovation is, is not always uh, uh, top of mind there. It's sort of just how do we maximize? How do we uh, reduce some extraneous cost? How do you, how do you optimize it? Um, but you're really talking about innovating it. So where did you two come up with that idea of kind of getting a better handle on it by, quote, taming it, but also innovating? part of what you said really speaks to it. Revenue cycle for many practices, uh, though it's a focus because obviously that's where the financials are, it's almost an afterthought for many organizations. And it's just sort of that one department um, that they believe kind of functions almost like um, a factory line, right? They just, they want to see, hey, we, we dropped you the claim, you, you did the claim, everything's very transactional. But really, there's a lot of opportunities within the revenue cycle to take hold of it and say, okay, how can we make this better? How can we um, lean on technology, which is something Kem is really passionate about? 
um, how can we take every step of this process and the individuals engaged in this process and really optimize what we're doing? And I think many industries are looking at ways to innovate overall. I think in healthcare, ways to, to innovate are really being looked at in, as far as care delivery. And it's almost as if revenue cycle is being left behind. And so for us, uh, we understand that, it, that it's turbulent. We understand the revenue cycle is frustrating and it can feel frenetic. And that is why, you know, the taming, that terminology came mm-hmm. into it because for many this is a hot topic and it's something that they're fiery about and we completely understand that but once you get those fires tamed down we don't want you to stop there we want you to keep looking at it you know what can you do in the future to prevent those fires from even starting you know what can we start to do to innovate within this process to make it better for you in the long run so it doesn't ever feel that hectic again right and so that's really kind of where the terminology came from sure one more follow-up question before i want to turn to kim um what's the lowest hanging fruit then when we're talking about innovation what are some of the things that people could just address right now in their practice and i say that knowing that each person's situation is different but I'm wondering if there's some common themes then. Yeah, and I think this is definitely one Kemp's going to want to comment on also, but absolutely the optimization of the technology. When we talk to organizations today, many times they're working around their technology to get results, and so it's costing them in time. Their productivity has lowered or they need additional staff to do what their technology typically does for them or is able to do, or maybe it wasn't at one time, but now it's able to do it again. And so typically that low-hanging fruit is really leaning on the tools that you already have on place and making them as efficient as possible to free up some of your time to go after larger projects. Okay. Yeah, I'll I'll just comment. This is Kim. I I think um, mapping workflows to technology is key, and that's a really low-hanging fruit for us to take advantage of. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? Now, many of our listeners may know how to map that, but some may not. So if you don't mind just elaborating on that a little bit. Sure. So when you look at the different elements of a revenue cycle, you think about just scheduling and confirming appointments. Um, There's going to be technology innovation that can be leveraged in your practice for those manual processes, right? So when you are looking at your internal workflows, mapping them to the opportunities that you have to leverage technology will really be helpful. So that mapping would include kind of documenting your manual processes and then looking at the opportunities to use your software um, to maybe remove some of those manual processes and optimize your return on your investment for that technology. Okay. Now, Kim, I have another question for you. I want to follow up on something that the two of you had had previously written in correspondence with us, you said that getting a handle on your revenue cycle is the first step to financial success. And I want to get sort of the philosophy behind that. Why do you believe that? And, and what can people do to kind of access that information and put it into action in their own practice? Sure. You know, to to answer that question, I'll start off by just telling you that I love the quote, a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step because it's so applicable to the many steps of managing a revenue cycle. Taya and I find that when practices take the step of assessing each element of their revenue cycle, 
to determine their strengths and address their weaknesses, they see a positive impact on their financial success. So getting a handle on a revenue cycle includes knowing and understanding baseline practice information. So for example, after assessing their payer mix, one of our practices determined that their lead physician was no longer participating with a major payer due to a credentialing mix-up. We were able to correct the physician's profile with the payer, resubmit unpaid claims, and add around $20,000 to their bottom line. With that being said, it's never too late to initiate a practice assessment. But there's so much to unpack here um, when it comes to assessing yourself. Uh, Taya and I are really looking forward to doing a deeper dive on this topic at our our interactive working session on revenue cycle assessments at MGMA's 2020 Financial Conference. Right. Yeah, it's going to be great to have you guys there. And I know that will be a, a deeper dive I wanted to go back to something you said. I, lo- I love that quote as well um, about a, the journey of a thousand miles. And so I wanted to go to those first steps then. Let's just kind of uncover that a little bit, Kim. What, what are those steps? When you're working with a practice, they uh, may be overwhelmed by their, situ- their revenue situation or some of the forces that are taking place in their practice, how do you kind of calm that that, um, anxiety, that nervousness, and just get down to those very first steps? How do you help them uncover that so they can begin to feel a little bit more confident about what's going on? So I I think the first thing to do is to identify your high-risk areas, right? So um, you want to take a look at the areas within your practice that are your trouble spots. And then you use that data to to break it down even further. So let's say, for example, you have a concern about your front office. So let's break that down into manageable chunks because that's the other part of an assessment is if you just kind of, you know, not you're not sure where to start, you wanna start somewhere small but then start somewhere that's impactful. And the front office is a great place to start. So really looking out and laying out all of the processes in your front office, from check-in to insurance verification, um, to appointment confirmations, document each one of those tasks and then rate yourself. See how well you're doing. Um, Document your findings and then use those findings to make a corrective action plan and then start training through that. Okay. Now, how do you educate someone on that? Because again, I look at it from the, if you look, take a a step back and look at it from the macro level, it can be incredibly overwhelming. And that's where we're getting at this, where we want to take those first steps. So how do you get them to to do that and to really buy in and begin to truly feel confident about the decisions that they're making. Because again, what if you're taking those steps, but then you maybe doubt yourself a little bit and you're going, oh my God, what if I'm going full bore, I feel confident and I want to aggressively attack this, but then you start taking the wrong steps. So how do you uh, begin to really measure that, take the right steps, and and then continue to feel confident about it? Well, great question and and good follow-up thoughts there. I I think measuring is key. 
so it, it's really not just about identifying the areas that are your concern and then um, coming up with the corrective action plan, but you, you definitely want to go back and measure yourself and monitor your successes. So whenever you put a corrective action plan in place, so let's say um, we had an issue with insurance verification um, and during our internal assessment, we've identified that our software is not being used to do insurance verification, um, but our, our staff are calling insurances. Um, when, you're, when you're thinking about your confidence level, believe it or not, Daniel, most of the, the practices and the, the folks who are responsible for these tasks, they have the skill set. I think they just need to get pointed in the right direction and getting started sometimes it seems a little overwhelming but again if you just start um you know from a, a small um, perspective and then kind of branch out into other areas of your practice you'll really you'll really find that it's manageable um, again looking at those high risk areas insurance verification being one of them um, and there's so many different ways to do insurance verification Finding the way that works best for your practice, I think, is key. There's really not going to be a one-size-fits-all process for all practices. It's really going to be unique to your individual practice. So, you know, having that confidence, um, knowing that you've been in the industry, um, you have resources like MGMA and maybe your specialty societies um, to turn to to get additional support starting with a specific high risk area in your practice, creating that corrective action plan, and then following up to make sure that those corrective actions have actually worked. And if they haven't, it's okay. I mean, they're, they're not going to always be, um, you know, be able to stick. You kind of go back and you start over. That's, that's a part of learning as well. I think we learn from those, um, those areas of improvement. Mm-hmm. Now, I have one more follow-up question with you on this side of it, and this is when you're talking about doing the assessment and you're in that discovery phase, I'm curious how often that when you're talking with people at a practice, they understand that some issues are off kilter, they're not where they need to be, but then in that discovery, you find out, wait a minute, here's something that you thought was going fine. Um, we have a process in place. We think it's going great, but then you, you find out we can improve this. So how do you then help them understand that there needs to be some buy-in and, hey, we can make some improvements there? Oh, my gosh. Let me tell you, that happens all <laughs> the time. And I think that's, you know, when, when you think about even like when you're cleaning your house on the weekend, right. you start cleaning one place and then you remember another area so that's going to always happen. But I actually look at that as a positive because there are going to be times when you think a certain area is high risk, but then as you're kind of, you know, unpeeling the onion, you come to find out that there are other areas. This practice assessment phase is that opportunity for, for everything to be put on the table. Um, and, and I recommend before starting a practice assessment, that's the time to get the buy-in from the from the physician owners or the practice owners to say, look, I'm about to do a deep dive into areas of our practice that we haven't looked at in a while. And during this process, 
I may uncover some things that we may not be aware of, but we all need to be on the same page and be willing, ready, and able to roll up our sleeves and do what's necessary to correct those those processes. Mm-hmm. Now, we're talking about revenue cycle management and revenue ci- cycle manage, uh, models because uh, there are issues. There is opportunity. Uh, there are also challenges. So I want to turn to Taya for a minute. What are those biggest barriers that practices have to overcome in their rev cycle models? Wow, that is a challenging question. <laughs> you know, I think we could, uh, I think we could get super deeply into the weeds on this one. But um, at a high level, I'd say the biggest barriers. Are, are normally going to come down to four things. And I'm sure Kim is going to agree on this. Um, education, focus, regulatory environment, and leadership support. You know, first and foremost, revenue cycle management has to be a focus for the organization. If we're not paying attention to it, that's a huge barrier to getting anything accomplished. <laughs> um, the individuals who are leading it, they have to be encouraged to seek out education and to further develop themselves professionally into their knowledge as it relates to revenue cycle. The regulatory environment is so dynamic right now. Um, I mean, to say the least, most of those changes are gonna be outside of our control, which means you have to stay aware of what's going on in the regulatory environment. But out of all of these things, none of them matter or, or can be as significant as having leadership support. Even if you have fully knowledgeable, super focused, engaged individuals, they will fail to succeed in situations where they do not have the backing of leadership. So it's really important to make sure that the individuals who are managing the revenue cycle are focused, that they're given opportunities for education and further development, and that they have the support um, for that positive change in the organization. Because that's where we really see a lot of failures is a lot of leadership support challenges. Okay. Now, I wanted to go back to education, the educational side of that. What are the skill sets that are needed uh, for someone to do a better job with these rev cycle models? So, um, you know, I don't want to get salesy about our book, so I'm going to try to stay away from that directly. But what I will say is that I think organizations and the individuals within them really need to understand what revenue cycle actually means. It starts well before the patient comes into the organization. It starts at the point the appointment is scheduled and it doesn't end until after you've received payment and that that payment was appropriate and accurate. So just having received the payment in itself doesn't end the process. And in between those two points, there are greater than 10 steps. Kim and I like to say that there's about 15 steps in between those. And if you don't understand the process for every single one of those steps and how it's occurring in your organization and the impact that it has to your organization, it can really be a devastating blow. Um, As far as education, first and foremost, please educate your front desk. Please make sure that they uh, fully understand how to do eligibility and benefits verifications, how to ask for help when they don't understand, how to select the proper plan in your system. Um, They can be the the biggest challenge if they're not given the education that they need. And again, sometimes that comes from leadership support, but I know Kem and I both have walked into organizations that have said, you know, the front desk has no impact on the revenue cycle, which is is completely, um, honestly, it's upside down. They have the greatest impact. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, let, let me jump back to Kim then. We were talking about steps 
uh, uh, just a moment ago. So let's talk about it in this regard. What are the steps needed to overcome these barriers? Yeah, so, you know, the way that I see it, there are several approaches to overcoming these barriers. The first would be to stay informed and to keep your workforce informed from the physicians to the front desk. Now, to do this, consider having memberships or affiliations with trusted resources like MGMA and others to notify you of changes that impact not only the industry, but your practice, your specialty, and your geographic location. So this would include signing up for email lists from resources like Medicare Learning Network, the OIG, your payers, um, their email bulletins are really useful, newsletters from your liability carrier, and updates from folks like your accountant and the attorney. Now, sharing this information with the appropriate staff is also key to overcoming the barriers that Taya mentioned. So if staff are unaware of payer and regulatory changes, then occur, you know, the occurrence of mistakes is, is going to increase. As Taya mentioned, um, support from leadership is essential. So educating providers on updates strengthens their buy-in um, to the changes that I, I think practice leaders are seeking to make in their organizations. Okay. Now, Taya, you were talking earlier about some of those foundational aspects that are needed for RevCycle management. One of those was sure. regulatory, payer changes. How does someone get a better handle on that? You know, the, the regulatory environment, I know I said it before, but it really can provide the most single form of turbulence to the revenue cycle. Um, even if you just look at, at MACRA, right, and the ripples that that caused in the industry, it is critical that they stay current on proposed and finalized regulations. Uh, and the best way to do that is through MGMA. I will say, for example, the proposed changes to E&M coding that were released this past summer, they could completely overhaul physician documentation and thereby the coding process. MGMA has an amazing government affairs council that provides updates to users along with summaries of key legislation. Now, if you're like me and you like reading the federal register, you can go directly there <laughs> and you can pull it. It's, you know, usually you've got 800, 1200 pages to, to read on those final rules, but it gives you a lot of insight. Um, you can provide comments back to the federal government, back to CMS, and they'll respond to those comments and their final rulings and explain why they did what they did. But what it gives you is a gigantic runway into the changes that are coming so that you don't get blindsided by them. And, you know, MGMA, the, the tools that they have, if you don't have the resources in your organization to put a whole department behind chasing regulatory changes, you can follow along so easily with the legislative updates that come out, the Government Affairs Forum, the Washington Connection. And if you're super into to reading the, the Federal Register, I mean, you know, I, I support anybody who wants to read it. We can go grab some, some Thai food together and chat about it. <laughs> but if that is not your gig, yep. you know, MGMA provides some really wonderful summaries. And so I would encourage people to follow those. Now, have you always had a, a passion for regulatory issues or where, where did that spark come from? So it's Ken's fault, actually. <laughs> um, I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> so, uh, you know, way, way back when, and I won't say how long ago because I want to, um, I was working <laughs> in a smaller private practice and I was getting deeply, deeply frustrated at the regulatory burden I was seeing on the organization with some state 
legislation that had come out and I was kind of just complaining about it, you know, and, and how can it be this way? This is so frustrating. And Tim was kind of like, oh, are you going to complain about it? Or are you going to do something about it? You know, we've got our Maryland MGMA uh, legislative committee and we had um, in Maryland, this is when I was still in Maryland, we had a, a medical society, government affairs council there. And so I joined both of those and we started lobbying and, you know, I've learned that whole process of really how to get legislation changed and how to be a voice for those physicians who, you know, they're engaged otherwise. They're seeing patients all day, but they needed someone to be that advocate for them. And learning that process, I think that's what made me so passionate about continuing to be involved and be engaged with legislative process because I really want to see positive change happen in the industry. And I now know, thanks to Kem, that you can't do that without being a part of it. So I really, I really get a lot of out of that and I'm very passionate about it. But it is definitely Kem's fault. <laughs> right. Do you drink a lot of coffee as you're uh, reading through this, or are you able to stay awake? <laughs> oh, I can just stay awake. I get so excited. I, you know, <laughs> people always are, are laughing at me when I don't print it out anymore because I do love the planet. Um, but people used to laugh because I'd have these huge stacks of paperwork, and I'm a tiny person, so you could almost miss me behind it. Right. Um, but it's exciting <laughs> stuff to me. You know, this is telling us what's coming down the line and, and how dynamic the change is going to be. And we're at the forefront of knowing about it before the rest of the industry, even though it's publicly available, just not that many people read it. So mm -hmm. um, it's very interesting stuff to me. <laughs> what's some, what, as you've dug into this information, what's something that's kind of blown your mind? What's been super interesting to you that you've, you know, taken that information and then helped disseminate that and, and share it with other healthcare professionals as well? Oh, man, I'll say, you know, there are a lot of things that that I could point to here um, that I've that I've worked on. And like when chronic care management first came out, how big that was. And, and nobody really even knew that it was a thing until about two years later, even though it had been publicly posted. Um, there's so much. But I think one of the things that Kem and I kind of get on our podium and talk about is this virtual credit cards because um, there was a big push for payers to provide an electronic means of payment to organizations. Mm -hmm. But the virtual credit card method actually charges a fee through the merchant account system for the provider offices. And so you have to pay money to get what you're due contractually. Uh, Kem and I are very, very passionate about organizations not taking virtual credit card payments, but actually in Maryland, we helped to get the legislation changed so organizations did not have to take that form of payment. They could, um, it was an opt-in as opposed to an opt-out. And so that was something we were really passionate about. As soon as we saw the legislation change, we recognized the impact that would have to the revenue cycle. And, you know, we just, we went down and we talked to, to everybody we could, the delegates and the senators that were available to talk to us about what that impact was going to be. And we were able to get that legislation changed. And that, I think, was kind of a pivotal moment, um, at least for me, in participating in government affairs. And I think we had a lot of fun doing that, too. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we did. Yeah, go ahead, Kim. Oh, Daniel, what were you gonna I was say? just going to add to that, that it's also very gratifying, I think, to to educate. And I think, when, when we're thinking about educating people, educating legislators on the the laws that they are creating that may have an adverse effect that they had not considered when they were, you know, proposing these laws. So, so being those educators to legislators, I think, is also very gratifying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Give us an idea then when you're seeing this information initially. How fast does it move? Is it 
months, years down the road when this actually takes effect? Or just, if you can, just give us a little bit of a timetable there. Sure. Oh, this is Kim. Sure. So it, it really just kind of depends on the legislation. Um, state legislation and federal legislation have different timelines. Um, typically, the state's um, legislative session is, is kind of open for several months. And if a, um, if a bill, which it kind of starts off as, as a bill, um, if a bill is in the process of still being vetted, it'll go through a committee. Um, and then that committee will kind of hash it out and um, the sponsors, the folks who are um, for the bill and the folks who are opposing the bill, they'll be able to kind of mediate with one another in a committee and then it'll go back to the floor again for a vote. Um, so I would say that it's not a very speedy process, um, but it, it's also very engaging. Mm-hmm. I wanted to turn to another subject now. This was brought up a couple of times, but the two of you have authored a book together. Uh, the name of that book is Revenue Cycle Management, Don't Get Lost in the Financial Maze. Kim, I'll turn to you first. I, I'm always curious about this. How does the process work with the two of you writing a book together? How do you do that? How do, how do, you, how do you plan it out? And then how do you divvy up the, the workload? And then uh, what are some of the main points that you wanted to get across from the book? Well, Daniel, Taya and I had so much fun writing this book together. In terms of divvying it up, <laughs> um, gosh, we, you know, we, we just kind of rolled our sleeves up. We, we actually, since we've both been in this industry for a really long time, we had a lot of content already. Um, so it's really just, it was a matter of pulling it all together, piecing it together. Um, the, the MGMA editing team was phenomenal in helping guide us through that process. Um, and, and both of us, we have a real passion for educating our peers. Um, and not only did we include um, so many of our own tricks of the trade as former practice managers and healthcare organization board members who have both turned as into consultants, um, but we tapped into other industry experts to give our readers strategies to manage the basic foundation of their revenue cycle while leveraging technology and value-based reimbursement to innovate those basic principles. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'd also say that anyone who purchases our book will have the opportunity to kind of peek behind the curtain and dive into the basics of what Taya and I call the building blocks of revenue cycle management while using this information to implement a fresh approach to innovating revenue integrity and capturing additional sources of revenue. I'd also tell you that we're excited to have our book included in the registration for anyone who will be attending our session at MGMA's 2020 Financial Conference. Oh, that's great. I didn't know about that part of it. So I want to go yeah. back to, yeah, I want to go back to something <laughs> uh, that I had harped on earlier and it's Titles. Titles mean a lot. I've been in journalism for 25 years, and so you kind of get people's attention with the title. You got my attention with the second part of your book's title, Don't Get Lost in the Financial Maze. I, I wanted to ask you about this, Kim. 
The revenue cycle management, it can be quite a maze. And, and I want to ask you, do we, is it as complicated as we make it? Or is it, is it truly this complicated? Is it this much of a maze that people have to wander and, and, and find themselves and find their practice in? So, you know, I, I mentioned those building blocks, and I believe that most healthcare executives have been exposed to to the, the 10 to 15 building blocks that Taya and I consider, um, and the industry would consider the, the key points in a revenue cycle. So for the most part, I think we've all been exposed to it. The, the, the obstacle, and I don't even wanna use that word, but, but where I think the challenge comes into play is, is that deep dive into being an expert in each one of those areas. So um, coding, it's, it's a part of the revenue cycle, but are all practice executives coding experts? No, um, and, and you, don't, you don't necessarily need to be a certified coder to manage Um, that point of your revenue cycle, but being exposed to coding, understanding the the innovations and the changes that are happening in coding. Um, Taya, she um, graciously um, recommended me to join her on MGMA's E&M committee, um, and and we're discussing strategies to help the the nation deal with the potential changes in E&M coding. Um, So what I would say is, yes, it does seem like a a maze and sometimes that maze is complicated, but I really think it's going back to understanding the impact of each of those building blocks and how you as a practice executive can use your areas of critical thinking and um, industry expertise to kind of tailor um, an approach to management of those individual sections in your practice. Okay. Uh, I want to turn back to Taya for a moment. And I know that we like real world e- examples on this podcast. And so I wanted to see if you had any spe- specific examples of people or practices you've seen who have thrived by innovating their revenue cycle management. Yes. You know, I know we both have when organizations start educating their staff and driving engagement and accountability in the management of the revenue cycle, it definitely will just fully revolutionize the financial landscape of that organization. Um, We've had organizations and I'm hesitant to really, you know, be super specific because I wouldn't want them to be easily identified, but um, you know, we've had, clients who have seen their days in AR decrease significantly just with minor attention paid. Um, With significant attention paid, I have a recent client who um, just with their, you know, their additional focus and education and what was causing denials and and ways to preventively manage those denials, they were able to reduce them by over half. Um, We have organizations improving collection of AR in the double digits. We have an organization who optimized their technology and they went from a 57%, their their denials, uh, 57% were caused due to poor entry data into the system. So demographic information going in and insurance data information going in um, was kicking back. And there was so basically there was no eligibility response being done. The claim couldn't be processed because the patient couldn't be matched properly on the payer side. 
they decreased that denial rate from 57% all the way down to less than 20% of the reason. So, I, I mean, just once you start providing that real focus and real effort into the revenue cycle, it does really warrant results. It's just kind of key for each of them to identify what that root cause is that's creating those hiccups before you change the internal processes. Um, so we've definitely seen organizations absolutely thrive once they start paying attention to those areas. Okay. Now, before we sign off, I wanted to turn back to Kim for a moment. I wanted to see if you had any thoughts, any tools, any techniques, anything like that you'd like to share with our audience on how they can improve their practices, revenue cycle management? Sure. I'll, I'll try to keep this answer simple. <laughs> um, because we could go really deep with this one. Sure. Um, a few techniques that would be recommended are to, as we discussed, mapping workflows to technology platforms being used to be sure that your practice is optimizing your technology return on investment. We all know that software isn't really a one-size-fits-all, so I encourage you to make technology fit for your practice, not the other way around. I think another approach would be key performance indicators because they're wonderful tools for benchmarking and tracking success. Um, you know, by identifying the metrics that need to be measured in your practice, you can track progress to take action on positive and negative outcomes. Um, another suggestion would be to research and select value-based programs. And, you know, once you're participating, you'd want to make sure that they're low-hanging fruit for your practice to not only manage, um, but to obtain the financial cost-sharing distributions from those programs. Um, a technique that we'd recommend for internal analysis is repurposing multifunctional tools. For instance, I, I mentioned on the webinar that MGMA has a new practice startup checklist. And I've used that um, in, in a, a number of ways, but one way can, it can be used is as the basis for starting your own practice assessment because it has all the tools there. Kim Tolliver, president of Medical Revenue Cycle Specialist, and Taya Moheiser, founder of ITS Healthcare. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having us. It was fun. Absolutely. It was a good time. Thank you, Daniel. From time to time, we have exciting news to share about the various ways MGMA is leading the healthcare conversation. Our latest news comes from Washington, D.C., where Associate Director Molly Gelbird and the MGMA Government Affairs team has been hard at work breaking down some important regulatory changes set to take effect on January 1st. Molly, thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, Daniel. Thanks so much for having me. Now, you have some important regulatory information to share with our audience. Uh, tell us about what's going on out there. Yeah, sure. So each year, Medicare releases a physician fee schedule. And what this does is it sets payment rates for each Medicare service. It updates billing requirements for services. Sometimes it adds new covered codes. And recently, it's also dictated uh, policies around reporting requirements under the Merit-Based Incentive Payment System, or MIPS, and Participation Options and Alternative Payment Models, or APMs. And this rule is, is really quite important each year because it governs Medicare payment policy. And as the largest payer in healthcare, Medicare is in a position to also influence commercial payers as well. So we find that often commercial payers will adopt Medicare payment policies 
to some extent. Um, so even if you don't have a large Medicare population, this, this rule can be important. So it's something that we look out for every year, and it usually comes out around November 1st, which it did this year. Right. And it, it's a pretty dense report. I, I believe it's over 2,000 pages, right? And you and your team, uh, the government affairs team, you guys develop an analysis for it. Is that correct? Yes, yes. So each year we um, tear through the usually several thousand page rule. This year it was almost 2,500 pages. And we distill it into an analysis which we push out as a resource for our membership that breaks down the policies that we think are most important to group practices. And so this year we have a, a great resource prepared. Um, and we really work together as a team to get that put together. Okay. Well, what are some of the top issues or changes to know from this year's ruling? So I think a top three list that, that I would come up with would first include the update to the Medicare conversion factor. And the conversion factor is the value that is used to turn a service RVU into a dollar value. So this number is critical because it's a component of every single service in the fee schedule. And so that's a number that I would always pay attention to because it'll tell you, um, or at least tell you how it influences the reimbursement rate of each and every service under the Medicare fee schedule. So this year it only increased about a nickel from last year, which is um, unfortunately continuing a trend that shows that Medicare payment rates are not keeping up with inflation, but always something important to note. Another key issue is some changes to evaluation and management coding. And importantly, these don't kick in until 2021, but given the frequency in which E&M um, codes are billed by certain specialties, any change to those policies can have a big impact on physician billing. So that's always something important to note, and those will start in 2021, but I think it's important to take a look at those now so that you can have the infrastructure in place to account for those changes when they kick in in 2021. Okay. Then the third thing that I would highlight that I think is the most important is changes to MIPS. While there's some stability in MIPS this year, there's not significant changes, there is one change that I, I would wanna highlight and that's the performance threshold. The performance threshold in MIPS each year is the point um, value that you have to exceed in order to avoid a payment penalty. So the payment penalties will be assessed in two years from the performance period so if you don't report um, high enough for MIPS, then you'd get a payment penalty in 2022. And that amount increases to 9%. So that's a significant number. So this year, the performance threshold is 45 points. So any, any uh, physician or group practice that is subject to MIPS reporting requirements would want to note that 45 number and make sure that they exceed it to avoid that penalty. Okay. Now, what can uh, MGMA members get out of uh, the government team's analysis that they, that they can't get anywhere else? That's a good question. Um, I think what separates MGMA's resource from others is that we created this specifically with group practice executives in mind um, and the leaders of, of business and, and medicine. 
and we talk to members, MGMA members, each and every day, and we really get that feedback from the physician executive community, and we incorporate that into our analysis. And so we made that with um, these folks in mind, and this year we included key takeaways under each policy that we summarized. And in those takeaways, we distill how we think that change policy will impact uh, those you know, on the ground and in actual operation. And so I think that's, that's something that I don't see in other resources that summarize the fee schedule. We really tried to you know, analyze it and break it down for folks. Okay. Well, Molly, thanks so much for all the work that you and the entire GA team do with uh, these really dense reports and making them uh, digestible for the rest of us. And just thanks so much for that. Yeah, thank you for having me today, Daniel. To learn more about this exclusive analysis of the 2020 Physician Fee Schedule, visit mgma.com or find us on Twitter at MGMA. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Insights. Thanks to our guests, Kim Tolliver, Taya Moheiser, and Molly Gelbird. To purchase or preview Kim and Taya's book, Revenue Cycle Management, Don't Get Lost in the Financial Maze, visit mgma.com slash rcm. You can also see them speak at MGMA 20, the financial conference, March 5th through the 7th in Nashville. To take advantage of early bird registration, visit mgma.com TFC20. If you like the show, please rate and review it wherever you get your podcast. We love hearing from listeners about the show. If you have topics you'd like us to cover or experts you'd like us to interview, email us at podcast at mgma.com or find me on Twitter at MGMA Daniel. MGMA Insights is presented by Craig Weberg, Rob Ketchum, Declan McGee, and I'm Daniel Williams. Thanks for listening. 